Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. We have been looking at the Ten Commandments. I'm going to really go quickly and, and touch on a few things. Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 22, when he was asked about the, the, which are the greatest commandments, he summed it up and he said, first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. The second one is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul brought it even down, distilled it down to even a, a shorter thought in Romans 13.10. Love does no harm to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It's not that the law, all of the law wasn't important. We have in, in uh, Exodus 20 is where, where we were taking our, our, um, our verse from. They list the, <clears throat> what we call the Ten Commandments. There are actually 613 of them. James tells us very clearly, you keep all 612 of those. You miss it one, you've missed them all. The point isn't, and, and I've, tried, I've used this illustration before, the law sets a standard. If we, if we have to get to salvation, we have to jump a chasm. And that chasm's a mile wide. It's a mile wide canyon. And I'm very fast. I'm a great broad jumper. Bob, was it Bob Beeman? Set the record. I think it's 24 feet, something like that, world record for, for broad jumps today. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Let's say I'm, I've got the, the ability to double that. I can jump 50 feet. No, no human's ever jumped that far on a broad jump. If that chasm's a mile wide, I got a lot of bragging rights as I plunge to my death. Look at me. I'm twice as good as the rest of you. We're all dying, but I got farther out than the rest of you. It, we're, we're breaking. We, 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 if we break one, we've broken them all. The point of the law wasn't to bring salvation. The point of the law was to tell us that we need a Savior because we cannot keep it. So the, the question comes to us, if I'm already saved, why do I need the law? Well, we need it because it shows me what the real me, the me on the inside, the born-again, spirit-filled, recreated, perfect man of God, my spirit, that's what, this is how I should be living. And part of the problem with the law is, is it shows me constantly, you don't measure up. You're trying. I know I'm perfect. I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. But I still don't live it out. It, it, it puts me in a constant state of reminder that I need Jesus on a daily basis. Paul said it in Romans 7. And I've heard people try to, try to explain away the end of Romans 7. Well, this is Paul talking about before he was saved. No, this is talking about Paul, the saved man, the apostle, slave of God. Romans 7, we'll start in verse 21. This is Paul. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members. We have to realize we are a three-part being. We are a spirit. We possess and have a body. And we also have a soul. We have our mind. It's interesting. I've, I've listened a lot to some psychologists lately, and they all whether they're, they're experimental psychologists or whether they're biological psychologists looking at the, the actual brain function of the nerves, they will all tell you, we have no idea where the mind comes from. We cannot explain how a brain, the physical neurons and the patterns they make, how we have can recognize that we are a unique human being. How do, how do we explain the mind? They have no idea. Because it's a spiritual thing. But, but my spirit is perfect. My body, evil beyond description. Hebrews 4.12. 
The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to split asunder and discern between soul and spirit. It's my mind. That's why Paul tells us in Romans 12, you have to renew your mind. You become a living sacrifice by renewing your mind to what the Word says. The devil will tell you constantly, you're worthless, you're, you're no good, you can't measure up. Well, of course I can't measure up. measure up. The law shows me every day I failed. I didn't make it. I didn't make it. I didn't make it. And God says, but you already have through me. I fulfilled the law. You're in me. Your blood has made you capable, made you worthy. It's not me. It's not my actions. He has called me to grow spiritually, but I will never be able to attain that perfection, at least not on this earth. But, but notice verse 24, well, 23. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. How many of you have ever thought? That was the very first verse of that, that last song we sang. I am dirty. I'm filthy. What am I going to do? Paul asked the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now we break for chapters there. There were no chapters in the original letter. Paul immediately goes to the very next thought. He says, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Even though I serve sin in my body, there's no condemnation. None. 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 The devil will condemn you, but he's a liar. He is a liar. Quit believing the lies. Jesus says, you're mine. I can't count the number of times, and I forget, where it says in the Bible, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Jesus is in a, the Holy Spirit's in a constant state of prayer, interceding for us. Wow. That encourages me. I, I, I'm not, I don't measure up when I look at how I live, I look at how I think, I look at what I do, and I think, I am never going to make it. And Jesus looks at me and says, of course not. But I did, and I've given you my life. It's not you. And then we go, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, that we've already covered this. I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He said that to say, I'm not a passive God. I'm a deliverer. I'm a sympathetic God. We're commanded in Hebrews 4.16, Come boldly before the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. It's one of the greatest problems that, that born-again Christians have is when you fail and you, you realize, I'm just a miserable wretch. The devil will tell you, you better stay away from God, buddy. Gina and I, this, this actually happened, but, but there, are times, you know, when, there are times when you preach and you set a standard that you're not walking in. I know that comes as a revelation to you all because... I am, you, you know, you realize I'm such a sweetheart of a guy. But there are times when you're driving home and you just notice your wife is really squeezing up against the car door. And you look over and, and it's, why, why are you trying to get away from me? Because when that bolt of lightning comes out of heaven and fries you because you just preach something that you're not living, I don't want to get killed with you. Well, the devil will tell you, you are a wretch, an absolute wretch. You need to stay away from God because he's mad at you. He's angry with you. And God's saying in Hebrews 4.16, no, that's when you need to run to me. I'm not angry with you. I, I saved you when you were worse than you are now. Why would I be angry with you? Come on in. Well, I've said it before. You read in Zechariah, the high priest Joshua came into God's presence and Satan came with him and said, look at this. This is your high priest. He has manure all over him. He's filthy. That represents sin. 
And God said, bring him in. Put clean clothes on him. Put a clean turban on his head. God didn't strike him dead for coming into his presence dirty. He cleaned him up when he came into his presence. That's why we need to run to God, not away from God. But then we come to to verse 3. God says, this is the first commandment, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or is it in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. That's the key right there. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now I'm going to tell you, that last part of there is a little hard for some people to take. Elsewhere in the Bible, it will say, um, I forgot, I think, um, I don't remember exactly where it is, that God does not visit the sins of the fathers on, on the children. What he's saying here, he's trying to make a contrast. Your sins will have some effect down to three, four generations. My lifestyle, how I live, will affect my kids. And it will affect my grandkids, and even some it will affect my great-grandkids. But when I do things right, that effect will go for a thousand generations. God's grace is so much power than, or more powerful than the enemy. I'm going to put my faith that when I do something right, and not only am I believing for me and for my grandkids, but I'm looking back. I know the faults of my father. Never knew a grandfather on either side because they were dead long before I was ever born. Don't, didn't know any of my great-grandfathers. They can influence my life. In fact, I've seen some influences from one of my grandfathers. I found out stories after my mom died because she would never say a word against her dad. But the man was, he was a scoundrel. And I have a cousin that, that really into genealogies and her favorite saying was you go up far enough you're going to find an admiral and a horse thief meaning when you trace out your genealogy you're going to find some people you're really proud of and you want to say hey I'm from that lineage and you're going to find some scoundrels well I can go back a thousand generations for the blessings that God will bring to me I got a thousand generations worth of seed that my family line. You go back a thousand generations, you're getting real close to Adam. Everything good that every human that's ever lived, I get credit for. That can be an influence in my life. God is saying, look, serve me. There are great rewards. Serve the devil. It's going to pay a price for a while. But man, serving me, it pays the price forever. I like that. But, but, but if you look here in verse 3 and 4 where he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Every time the word you is used there, it's, it's in the singular form. These commandments were not given to the nation of Israel. They were given to every individual member of that nation. Now that's important today in particular because we have this new, well it's not a new concept, it's a concept as old as sin, But people want to judge you by your group. I've had people tell me to my face, well, you you, you have all these benefits because you're white. I had one guy tell me, everything runs good for you because you're upper middle class white Protestant. And it's like, really? Because the childhood I remember was working class and not very prosperous working class for most of my childhood. And, and while I might have been white, believe me, I was not living as a Christian life. I was out in the world partying hard. So if you think that's what got me where I am, sorry. Wrong. God doesn't look at us and our group. He doesn't look at us, well, this is, this is you know, you're in this Protestant denomination, so you guys are doing pretty good. No, he wants to see your individual heart. That's what he cares about. Your heart. He he deals with you individually, one-on-one. And when you stand up before him, and you will at some point, he's not going to want to hear anything about your mama and your daddy. He's not going to want to hear anything about how you grew up in a dysfunctional home. 
just you know, write it down. We all grew up in dysfunctional homes. My kids included. Why? Because I'm a dysfunctional human being. That's why. Now, I'm not saying that to say that some people didn't have a much rougher upbringing than I did. I look at back how my parents, my parents made mistakes, but man, they were, whew. my dad used to say, I had a bird nest on the ground. I didn't have to crawl up in a tree to get into the nest. He, he brought it down to my level. I, I had it great. I had a pretty idyllic childhood. But at the same time, God doesn't care about my childhood. He said, what are you going to do today? Where are you going to believe me today? Where are you going to exercise faith in my promise today? Because yesterday's dead and gone. Tomorrow doesn't exist. Not yet. Amen? But he, he, he deals with us individually. But when he says in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And then in verse 4, he starts talking about carved images. We don't think about idols today. We don't, you don't drive now. Now, you go to Mexico, you'll find idols. You'll find little shrines. And people will bring You go to India, you'll find shrines. I mean, India, they've got like a couple of million gods. And they'll build shrines to them. Not very many people that have shrines in their homes and have little idols that they bow down and they actually think that little chunk of clay or whatever but the point is, when he says you shall not bow down to them or serve them, what are you serving? What's your motivation for life? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What's your first thought when you get up? Is it, oh my God, another day? Or it's another day. Oh God, what, we, what do you got in store for me today? Makes all the difference in the world. I've heard it, put it this way. You know, if... if, if um, Let's say they could seal your house, hermetically seal it, kill all the bacteria, nothing. It, it's going to be preserved forever. And civilization just falls apart. And 20,000 years from now, an archaeologist digs down and finds your house and goes in your house and looks at how everything's set up. What are they going to think? They will know pretty quick what your kitchen was for. It's pretty obvious. This is food preparation. This is where we make food. This is where, you know, you got a table there where you can sit. They walk into your, your bedroom. They're going to say, well, yeah, I can see this is kind of soft. It's big. They're probably laying down sleeping here. They walk into your living room. What are they going to find? They're going to find every, pretty much every place to sit pointed in one direction to one device. Now, they have, no, they have no memory. Civilization was lost. All information about how we lived. They're going to look at that one piece of equipment and they're going to think, they were worshiping this thing. It's the center point. It is the center point of their existence. And how many of you, God calls you to pray, but, whoa, it's 8.30. It's time for my show. I know, I've, gone to, I've done gone to meddling, haven't I? When you put anything above what God's call is, and you let it distract you from your true call, it's become an idol. You can make an idol out of TV. You can make an idol out of, of, of an education. You can make an idol out of art. I know a lot of people worship art. Oh man, that's their whole life. You can make an idol out of music, and believe me, music is a tool for good. We saw that this morning. Well, that song led us right into the presence of God. That anointing fell, and you could just, it was almost tangible, you could feel it. But you can also go at a head-banging rock concert, and the devil's being portrayed clearly and worshipped clearly. You can make reason an idol. You can make sports an idol. Anything you put in your life more important than God, that has become your idol. We have to be very careful about any natural thing that comes before God. Now, there were some examples. I, I, I went into one earlier, and we're going to go back there. 1 Samuel chapter 10. This is Saul. 
in, in verse 1 it says, this is when Samuel, the, the nation had been clamoring for a king. And, and Samuel took a flask of oil because God said, go find Saul. He's, he's the one that I'm going to anoint. But I said it before, look at it. It said, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, on Samuel's or on Saul's head, and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? God did not call Saul to be the king. He called him to be a commander over his inheritance, the nation of Israel. And then he, he, he confirmed it. Verse 2, he sent these two men to say, this is where the donkeys are that you've been. It's what led you to Samuel and led Samuel to recognize because when Samuel saw you, God spoke in his ear and said, this is the one. Pull him aside, set him up, bless him. And then in, in 1 Samuel 10:1, anoint him and tell him, God, I've called him to be a commander over my inheritance. In verse 3 and 4, he met these three men. They had three goats, they had three loaves of bread, and they had a flask of wine. He said, I've brought you a sacrifice, I've brought you blood and bread. I'm telling you, as long as you keep me first, keep that first and foremost in your mind, Saul, you'll do well. Verse 5 through 8, he put him in a group of prophets. And, and, and Saul was changed. He started singing. He started prophesying. He was changed into a new man. God said, I will let you tap into the prophet's ministry if you'll just follow me. I will lead you supernaturally and you will be able to bless my inheritance. You will be able to bless my people. You realize that's the only reason we are still on this earth. When we got born again, we had a legal right to go to heaven. Why did God leave us behind? Because we got a job to do. Preach the Word. Preach the Gospel. Get people saved. Bring them into the kingdom. It's the only reason we are here. Everything else has to serve that function. If it doesn't serve that function, then I would suggest maybe it's become an idol. Then God had Samuel bring Saul before the people. And if you drop, you're still in verse 10, or chapter 10, verse down, drop down to verse 23. It says, when, when they finally found Saul, because Saul was hiding, he was a little afraid of the call. That's a smart man. I've seen people put themselves forward for a call they thought they had on their lives and it ruined them. Saul started out right. In fact, at the very end, Samuel's going to tell Saul, when you were small in your own eyes, you did well. And here's the problem. You got big in your eyes. We're going to see that with Saul. Verse 23, it says, So they ran, the people ran, and brought Saul out from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. He was a big guy and he was a handsome guy. Born leader. Yeah. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is none like him among all the people? So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. In verse 1, God called Saul to be commander. In verse 24, the people said, You're our king. And what did Saul do? He agreed with the people. He said, you're right, I'm king. God didn't call him. That was his first major mistake. He took on responsibility God had not given him the right to, to take on. He had an anointing to be commander. He did not have an anointing to be king. And it destroyed him. Our greatest temptation is to begin to think that life centers on me. I joked about it last week. We were coming home. You know, you get behind the two semis. And they both got governors set a little bit different. And one's passing the other, and he gets almost in front of him. And suddenly you hit a little hill, and the other one starts to overtake him. So you, for 20 miles, you're following these two trucks going 15, 20 miles an hour faster than you are. And your mind starts thinking, do they not know I'm back here? Do they not care that they're in my way? And the answer is, they know you're back there. They don't care. They're, they're at work and they're doing their work and when they can finally get past one another, they'll let you go and you can go drive like the idiot that you're wanting to drive like now. But we get that thought, do they not know that they are inconveniencing me? 
I've just made myself the center of all of this deal. And we all fall in and have that temptation. It's all about me. Lord, I would be fine if it wasn't for that woman that you gave me. And when you say that, your wife would say, Lord, it was the serpent that did it to me. This, is, this started all the way back in Genesis. This isn't, they thought it's all about me. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. Now, even after this, when, when um, the nation went into captivity, and they went into captivity for one reason, they, they never rejected outright idol worship. King would come up, and they'd, they'd run all the idols out, they'd tear the high places down, and they'd serve God for a while, and then a new king would come, and the high places would be built again, and they'd build uh, idols to Baal and to Ashtaroth and do all the crazy, unbelievably perverted stuff that they did. They went into captivity for that reason. They stayed in captivity for 70 years because they violated the law, one of the 613, that they were supposed to let the land rest every 70 years. And they had been in the, in the land for 490 years, so they owed the land 70 years of rest. So God said, you're going in because of your idol worship. You're staying in captivity for 70 years. And the land's going to get its rest. But then I'm bringing you out. While they were in there, Daniel chapter 2 they were serving, and Daniel was a very wise man, and, and the, the Babylonians recognized that Daniel was a very wise man. Nebuchadnezzar woke up one day, and he realized, I had a terrifying dream, but I don't remember it. He just knew it was, it was scary. So he went to his wise men, his magicians, and he said, I want you to come tell me what the dream was and what it means. And they said, well, tell us what the dream was, and we'll tell you what it means. He said, I don't remember it. You tell me what I dreamed. If you tell me, I'll, it'll bring, back, bring it back to my memory. And then you can tell me what it means. And he said, well, Lord, nobody can do that. And he said, well, I'll give you a few days, and then if you can't tell me what my dream was, I'm cutting all your heads off, and I'm going to kill all your family, all your dogs, all your cats, all your cattle. I'm destroying everything. You won't even, people won't know you ever existed. Well, that will bring a little fear into your life. So what did they do? They started spreading the word. Somebody's got to solve this. We don't know what to do because we can't tell him. And finally they told Daniel, and Daniel was at, at risk of death. So Daniel went, prayed to God, and God said, no problem. I'll tell you what his dream was. And he did. And he went to, to Daniel went to um, um, Nebuchadnezzar, and he said, he gave him the, the, the um, to, and Nebuchadnezzar had had the dream of this statue. And the head was gold. The, the chest and the arms were silver. The, the um, um, abdomen and the tops of the thighs were bronze. And then the, the middle part of the leg was iron, and the ankles and the feet were iron mixed with clay. And it represented the major kingdoms up to the Roman Empire. And it stopped with the Roman Empire because the church age comes right after the Roman Empire, and nobody knew the church age was coming. It was a mystery. But then it comes back to Israel time with the feet and the ankles with the iron mixed to clay, which is the reconstituted Roman Empire during the tribulation. But God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel, and he said, King, this is it. He said, the head that's gold, that's you and that's your kingdom. And you are the greatest king that will ever live. Now, he's, he's excluding Jesus. Because after that, he told Nebuchadnezzar, you also saw a rock. Not a very big rock, but you saw this rock come roll down a hill and it hit this statue and destroyed it and ground it into dust. And then the rock grew into a great mountain and covered the entire planet. Well, what is it? The heads of the Babylonian kingdom, the chest and the, and the arms are the uh, Grecian king, or no, excuse me, the Medo-Persian kingdom. The, the stomach and the tops, the, the bronze was the Greeks. The iron was the Romans, and then the feet and the clay mixed together is the reconstituted Roman Empire at the very last days. But he said to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the golden head, because you have a kingdom that nobody else will ever be able to match. They'll be great, but they can't match you. What did Nebuchadnezzar do? Go to Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar built a statue. And the entire thing was gold. Now the point of the dream was, sure, there's, I'm showing you all of these kingdoms. Your kingdom is starting. It's the greatest it ever will be. 
But then there's these successive kingdoms because you are going to die and there are going to be other kingdoms after you. But there is a rock. There is a rock. And it's going to kill, it's going to destroy all these earthly kingdoms. And it's going to grow and rule the entire earth and it will rule the entire earth for all eternity. Instead of Nebuchadnezzar saying, well, who's the rock? He said, I'm the gold. And he built a statue. The entire statue was gold and it had a furnace in the bottom. And he said, anybody doesn't worship me? Because man, God said, I am the greatest king that ever was. And God did say that. But it went to his head. Just like Saul let what the people say went to his head, Nebuchadnezzar allowed what he did to go to his head. We get the familiar story where um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we'll not bow before the king, and he said, throw him in the fire. And he looked in the furnace and he said, wait a minute, you guys threw three guys in there and I see a fourth one. And that fourth one looks like the Son of God. Well, it was. It was a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus, of the second person of the Godhead. And all that fire in that furnace burnt off the, the cords that bound those guys, but it did not harm them. They came out of that furnace. They didn't even smell like smoke. Nebuchadnezzar realized there is a God, and I'm not him. Now, he still had the problem. Now, after the, the nation of Israel came out of captivity, they never once went back and worshipped idols again. But they slid off into the other ditch. They never worshipped idols, but they made the law into an idol itself. They, they, their, their law became so important to them, and they added, you know, God gave them 613, I forget, I've read the figure, it's several thousand laws that the Pharisees added. It was, it, it, think of it this way, the, the, there are things that you can't have, that's a tree. So the law built a fence around the tree to keep you from getting to where you're supposed to be. And the Pharisees come along and they build another fence, and then they build another fence, and then they build another fence thinking if we build enough fences, eventually we won't get to that tree and do what God doesn't want us to do, not realizing that they are the tree. The nature of them, the nature of sin is within them. It can't prevent you from getting there because you already are there. You're a child of Adam. You're born in sin. And it's just a matter of time before it manifests it. There's only one way out, and that's to trust in the Messiah. The goats, the sacrifice, the bread, the wine. That's the only way out. They got to the point where Jesus even rebuked them. Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. When he has won, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. They so wanted to please God and follow the law that they became sons of hell. They became hard and, 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 and religious and nasty. They got after Jesus. They said, he, he's a whoremonger. He's a drunkard. Why? Because he hangs out with prostitutes and drunkards. So he must be one. They missed the Messiah because they worshipped the law. Jesus went on, verse, Matthew 23, starting in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Anytime Jesus looks at you and says, woe to you, you're, man, that's, not a, that's a hard word. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why are they hypocrites? For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Those are, are spices. They would go into their spice work. You know, we, have, we used to have a big spice rack. Now we just keep the tin cans up in the cabinet. But, but they would go in and when they would harvest, you don't, take a, you don't have, to have a lot of spices in your food. It only takes a little bit of spice to, to change the flavor. But they would go through and measure out their spices and take a tenth of it and measure it out precisely and take that and, 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 and give that to the priest. He says, you, you, you pay a tithe on your mint, your anise, and your cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. We can, be, we can bring our tithes and our offerings. We can give everything we've got. But if we ignore justice and mercy and faith, it doesn't matter what we give. 
These you ought to have done. He says, don't forget about the tithing, that's good. But don't leave the others undone. Your blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. What in the world does that mean? That means that you, you, you strain out this one little provision that you know you can keep. And that's the deceptive part of the law. You will look in the law and you will find the parts of the law that, that meet your strengths that you can keep pretty well. You will keep those and you'll think, I'm pretty good. Look at me. And you don't realize that there's 600 other ones. Sure, you've kept 13. You've got the Ten Commandments plus an extra three, but you've got 600 that you're walking all over. We will always make the law fit ourselves. We, we will squeeze out a little gnat that say, and put it up and say, look, the, the, the gnats were unclean animals. That's why they would, that's why I use a strain on that. When, when they would eat soup, they didn't have screens on their windows. They had bugs in their house, flying bugs. And if a gnat landed in their soup, man, you better get that gnat out because it's unclean. It'll make your, you will eat something unclean and that will make you unclean. That's why they argue, Jesus said in, in another passage, it's not what you put into your body that brings out the trash. I don't, you can take the greatest ribeye steak in the world. After you eat it, when you eliminate it out the other end, it's pretty nasty. The Jews are saying, if you eat all the right stuff, it's not nasty. The end result of me following the law, I'm ignoring the nastiness that comes out of me. And Jesus is saying, it's not what you put into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. We, we have to make sure. He says in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the, cup and the dish, but inside... You're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish and that the outside may also be clean. You're like whitewashed tombstones, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I listened to Pastor Nanny's uh, sermon from a couple of weeks ago and he talked about the business meeting. I'm telling you, some of the most vicious fights I've ever seen have been in church board meetings. Almost come to blows. In fact, I've, 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 I have other pastors that they've had to break up fights in their board meetings. Dear God, how, how can that happen? Because we're dealing with people that are blind. Even though we're born again, we still have our little rules. And when we think our little rules are more important than following Him and doing what He says and saying, I'm not here to get my way, I'm here to see and, and pray and believe what God's way is. Now the rub comes when you really truly believe this is God's way. But everybody else sees it another way. So what? Okay, I may not agree, but I'm not going to get disagreeable with you over that. We get upset, well, we were talking about this in men's prayer, and I get as angry as anybody. When I look at what New York and, and Rhode Island and some of these states have done on abortion, I, I not only want to go hit somebody, I want to go get a gun. It's time to break out the armament. We're going to war. They're killing babies, not just unborn babies. They're wanting to kill them after they're born now. That's my flesh. Is it an abomination? Absolutely. What's the answer? Pray them into the kingdom. Bind the devil off their hearts and their minds. And when they get saved, their eyes will open. Well, no, wait a minute. There are, there are people that, are, that say they're Christians. Sure. They're blind Pharisees. They're the blind leading the blind. They're all ended up in the ditch. You can find anybody. I, I said it before. I think it was, was Barna Group did a survey and 80% and, and of the American population self-identifies as Christians. 80%. That's pretty good. 
until you start really looking at what, what, describing to them what it means to be a Christian, to be totally sold out to Jesus, and have that born-again experience. And when you start listing those things, and do you meet all of these criteria, only 3% of that, 80%, are truly born again. We look at Africa and India and, 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 and China and Europe and think, man, those people need the gospel. We've got to send missionaries. We ain't doing such a hot job ourselves here. The vast majority of our neighbors out here in these neighborhoods are lost and dying and going to go to hell and they're going to be tormented for all eternity because we are so self-absorbed that we want to argue about carpet or or one little thing or another thing or where money ought to be spent or that the church just doesn't listen to me. I'm going to go find another church. Dear God in heaven, who cares? This isn't about me. It's not about you. It's about the kingdom. It's about getting sinners saved. We get so caught up in our own little world. That's what this first commandment says. Don't make an idol out of anything. If I think that what my opinion is the most important opinion, and if you're honest, that's exactly what you think. We all do. Why? Because I'm the smartest guy I know. (laughs) It's just the truth. We are so self-absorbed and so self-centered. It's the root of almost every one of our sins is I'm not... I can guarantee you pretty much every divorce that's ever happened happens for one reason. She's not meeting my needs. Um, um, Who's the guy from Colorado? Andrew Walmack uses the example. He says, modern marriage is like um, um, milkshake marriage. You get married and you get this brand new beautiful milkshake oh man it's pristine what do you do you jab a straw in it and you start sucking and you oh it's good it's good and then you hear there's nothing left you've drained them it's like marriage is over throw that one away and go get me a new one and what's going to happen with the new one the same problems you had with the old one why because i'm the problem I'm the problem. You know what the problem is between us? (laughs) You're you're supposed to point to yourself, not me. It's like our kids used to always say, you point your finger at them. They say, you got three pointing back at you. You only got one pointing at me. That's exactly when I point my finger at her and say, she's the problem. One, two, three. I'm the problem. My self-centered, egotistical, you're not meeting my needs. Well, honey, it was, marriage was never intended to meet your needs. God, for one thing, God's not going to let her meet my needs because I would make her an idol. I would forget about Him. Why do I need God? I got her. She's meeting all of my needs. Thanks, God, but I don't need you anymore. No, you know why marriage is so hard? Keeps you on your knees and keeps you praying to God. (laughs) You know it's true. You know it's true. So, here's the point. Why do we have this law? We have this law so that when we start to get self-centered, when we start to puff our chest out and think, you know, I'm doing pretty good. Look at, look at this, and look at that, and look at my accomplishments here. I'm, I'm, I think, maybe, I'm no longer called as commander. Maybe I ought to just be king. The law will remind you, you think you're something, but you're not. You haven't attained godhood yet. It reminds me that every day, I have to plug into Him. I have to run to that throne room and say, Oh dear God, Jesus, please help me. I am a miserable wretch of a sinner. And what's He going to do? He's going to say, Here's a big helping of mercy. Here's another big helping of grace. It's okay. I know you're a screw up. 
You were a worse screw-up when I saved you than you are today. You've actually improved a little bit. So come on, let's get up off your feet and let's go get back to work. Oh, but Lord, I know, I'm, I'm going to mess it up. How many of you have had a, a child's painting drawing on your refrigerator, or let's get real special, a grandchild? You, you put those drawings on your refrigerator, and man, I wouldn't trade that for a Mona Lisa and no way. This one's precious. Why? Because it's my grandchild. It's my child. I said a couple of weeks ago, I ran across somewhere, I don't know, I was going through files, I ran across a little notebook that Tiffany used to keep notes in church. <laughs> it was just scribbles. Just scribbles. She couldn't write. She was like three or four. But she'd take her pencil because she saw Mama taking notes. And, and she very rarely ever saw Daddy take notes because Dad can't get distracted. But she'd take a note. You couldn't buy that for $1,000. That's precious to me. God looks at our works as screwed up and messed up and faulty and failing as they are. And he said, Jesus looks at the Holy Spirit and he says, look at that work of art. Look at that work of art. That's mine. That one belongs to me. I love that so much. And we look at it and think, oh, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. How could I have ever done that? And Jesus looks at it and He says, you don't understand. You're mine and I love you. I love you so intensely that I gave up everything I had just for you. Just for you. How can we not want to serve Him? How can we get so big-headed and think, look at me. I'm just a worm compared to him, but he gave everything for me. It makes me just want to crawl up into his lap and say, please, thank you. Forgive me. And he just hugs on us and says, it's okay. Now get back to work. How can we fail? With a God like that, how can you can't, you cannot fail ever? Not in His eyes. He's already done everything ever needed to be done. And He's handed it all to you. He said, Are you hungry? Come on, I'll feed you. Are you thirsty? I've got some drink for you. You need mercy? I've got it. You need grace? I've got more than you can ever absorb. Just come and get in my presence. I just want to hang out with you. You realize that? God wants to hang out with you. He likes you. Forget about the love. He likes you. Have you ever thought about what that means? God of the universe likes me. Wow. The laws are there to remind us that we still need Him. Because sometimes we forget. Sometimes we get caught up and think, I'm something special. Well, you are. But you're only special because of what he's done. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for all you have done for me. All you're going to do for me. Thank you for, for, for pulling me up and making my scribbles a work of art. Thank you, Lord. I worship you today. I just invite you, take a minute. Just, I don't know if you need to kneel, you need to stand, but worship God for a minute. Just worship Him. He's worthy. He is so worthy. He is so, so worthy. He reached down and he plucked us out of the nastiest, filthiest life that we were. And he cleaned us up and he sets us before him and he says, you're going to sit right on this throne with me because you're my child. You're my child. And I love you.
and you're safe with me. And the enemy will come and he'll, he'll, he'll test you. He'll tell you you're greater than you are or you're worse than you are. But he'll never admit that what you truly are is a son of God. Just surrender to that today. I, I, as we go from here today, I want you to just take that thought with you. God, you're on my side. You have, you know, Ephesians tells us that we are seated with him in heavenly places. I just got to, I've, I've always thought of that as, as when you look there, you see Jesus, but I'm inside him. And what I just saw was when we went to see our grandkids a few weeks ago, I forget which one it was. I think it was, was um, Gage. He just crawled up in my lap one time. He couldn't stay there long because he can't. He has to move. But I'm telling you, the few minutes that he sat there and let me hug on him, it was worth thousands of miles driving just to have that feeling that my grandson wanted to snuggle with his grandpa. That's where we are all day, every day. Jesus is holding us in his lap. We're seated with him, and he's holding on to us. And he wants us to love him, and he loves us. It's a secure feeling. As, you, as the pressures of life come against you this week, you just see that vision. Lord, I'm here. I'm at your throne. And I'm on your lap. And you're loving on me because you do love me. And I thank you for it, and I worship you for that. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.